You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. With the help of the Lord. Our series was delayed a week as uh, it was unexpected uh, uh, sick last week, so we missed a week. Thank you, Brother Bollinger, for standing in for us and ministering to us, and we thank God for that. We're going to jump right into the Word of God. We're changing our format here a little bit, just expediting some things. We will have announcements and prayer at the conclusion of this service after we dismiss the live stream, and our children will come down and help us with that. So thank you for your faithfulness in giving. If you missed the first uh, week of this, it was primarily just an introduction and a foundation, and we also went through the first nine verses which is Paul's greeting, Paul's introduction to us. We shared a video, and uh, I can't remember if we texted that out or they posted that in the private group, but did anybody get a chance to look at that video that was an introduction? All right, a few of you to the, the city of Corinth, and it expounded some things of why it was significant. If you haven't had a chance to go back and watch that, I would encourage you. It's about a 45 minute video that I think was posted in the private group. Uh, as well as maybe shared out on email. I can't remember exactly. But it sets it up. So without taking time tonight to go back to through the introduction, we're going to jump right in and pick up where we left off. And that is at verse 10. So I hope you have your Bibles open and uh, your notebooks out. I don't have a lot of bullet points that we're going to put on uh, the, uh, the, the screen throughout this series. I'm just going to let the text sort of lead us. So as you feel prompted to write things down, do so. Underline. I encourage highlight, underline, circle, draw arrows, lines in your Bible because it helps you for recall and going back. So here we come to the passage of or, or, the, or the main crutch of the text where it really begins. Paul has gotten through his introduction and uh, he ends the introduction of verse 9 by saying, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He makes an appeal to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And here now in verse 10, he sets us up for what is perhaps one of the uh, harder scriptures that the apostle, or harder epistles that the apostle Paul writes. He is going to deal with some difficult things. He's going to speak some things that are hard for our human flesh and pride to... uh, ingest if you can. He's going to give us some things. That's why this book is so critical, because as we go through these next 16 chapters, there's some difficult things that we're going to have to deal with and have to navigate. And myself included, every one of us is probably going to have to say, ooh, maybe I haven't always stood on the right side of the issue here. And so Paul is really correcting. This is really, in fact, some people would say that this is the most scathing epistle that Paul writes. But he doesn't come out of of the chute with a sledgehammer, but he does so very delicately. 
And this is wise. This is wonderful. Look at what he says in verse 10. After he's got through the introduction, now I beseech you, brethren. Brother Ryan, why don't you read for us? Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So here we have Paul giving us a request, or, or the Corinthians specifically giving a request. He does not come with a demand or by demand, or by invoking a law or an ordinance, but he comes in the manner of a request. This is important. This is critical. Because we know what's coming. We know what's followed. We know what follows. We know the hard things that he's going to say. And he's setting this up, and he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is coming in a request. I, I, I beseech you. He's making an appeal. And this is so important. Why? Look at what he says. He says, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not only is he making an appeal, I beseech you, but now he is making this, if you will, rather official. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just not getting into it. He's making this official, which allows us to understand that he's making a change in his speech, and he is coming to them in full apostolic authority. Paul is somebody in the New Testament church. He, he, he carries some weight with it, if you will. And this is a time where he is invoking his apostolic authority. He's making this an official appeal here. But in making it official, he doesn't come with a demand or a request or a sledgehammer or, or, or a demand, but he does come with a request and he's making an appeal because what Paul wants to see happen is he wants to see their behavior changed. Not because he's the head honcho, top dog, upper echelon apostle. He wants their behavior to change because they are motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants their behavior to change because they have a relationship with God. And so he doesn't come demanding. We could have. He could have said, you bunch of losers, you are so messed up. You are so bad. You have done everything wrong. Don't you know you have broken all the rules? But that's not what he says. He said, I beseech you, brethren. He calls them brethren. Now, this is interesting because what we're going to read in the rest of the epistle, if we read that about certain people in our church today, we would probably not call them brethren. We would say, I don't I don't know. I don't even know if they're going to make it to heaven. Bless God. Now, Paul actually does later on say. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're going to make it. But he doesn't make that judgment himself. He leaves that between them and God. And he makes the appeal and says, brethren. Why? Because he's trying to make the appeal to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ that is at work in their life. And he wants their behavior to change. Yeah. 
Not because he's coming saying, this is what I demand that you do. But this is what you ought to do. This is what's right by your walk with God. This is what's right by God working in you. I think this is very important in the church, especially in our church today, that we as as, as uh, pastors and spiritual leaders uh, uh, of spiritual ch- authority in the church do not take it to a place of abuse or that we as, as members of the body of Christ sitting in the pew do not just do things in this simple way of checking our brain at the door and, oh, the pastor, I'm just doing whatever the pastor says for me to do. And we almost gut our relationship with God, and we just turn ourselves into kind of this robotic type way. God does not want spiritual leadership in the church to rule by law, and he does not want the body of Christ just to rule by following blindly who they're leading without any connection or relationship with God. Paul's going to reiterate this later on when he says, he's going to, you're going to see this theme reoccur when he says, follow me even as I follow Christ. So he's coming in full apostolic authority because he is the apostle. He is the one that has spent his time there. He's coming with the weight of that authority and he's establishing some things, but his appeal is made to them and their relationship with God. They're saved. And so while he's coming as an apostle, he does not come saying that I'm greater than you. He calls them brethren, that I along with you are also a part of the body of Christ. Now, that he gets that out of the way, he gives them a very specific request. Read, if you will, for me the second part. Let's read this verse again. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, yes. that you all speak the same thing. Okay, so here it is. He now is giving a very specific request. Speak the same thing, okay? And that there be no divisions among you. Yes. But that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Okay. No division. So that is the object that Paul is trying to get to, that there be no divisions among you. Disunity in the church is probably one of the greatest things that we will constantly struggle and war against. Can I say that again? Disunity in the church, in the body of Christ, will be one of the greatest things that we will constantly and continually struggle with and war against. It's always been the case, and it's always is the case when you look around, and probably always will be the case. And the reason why is because we are individuals, and we all have been given an independent mind. And so as we come together, there has to be an enormous baptism of humility for us to understand where we are in the body of Christ. And there is no room for pride in the church. And he's going to talk about this later on. And when pride comes up, it doesn't matter what place that you are in the church, pride is able to enter in, and pride brings forth destruction. 
And we've seen this in the church. Not every time is the devil to blame for church trouble. That's right. Yeah. All right. Now, I know we like to go to that passage. He wrote it to another church where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. I understand that. I understand spiritual warfare. But a lot of the issues that were taking place here... Paul never says, well, the problem you've got is you're just, you've got a devil that you haven't run out of town yet. He never once says that to the church at Corinth. And so if I, here's, here's one thing that's, here's a powerful principle about spiritual warfare that I've understood. If I can just get myself right with God. Yes, amen. Oh, yes and keep myself right with God, and keep myself in the true humble posture that I, I need to be to have a right perspective in my life, that takes care of so much spiritual warfare. Well, nobody's going to help me preach on Wednesday night, but it's glad that you could come. Amen. Glad that we could be here for this. Amen. So let's go on. Well, well, let's pause here. So, we, so he's asking them a specific request. Now, there's divisions in the church. So this is a big thing that Paul is talking about. And, 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 and this, these uh, uh, eight verses here, uh, you know, we, we call them contentions in the church where he's really addressing this. But he's asking them all to speak the same thing. Everybody say, same thing. Same thing. That you be joined together in the same mind. Somebody says, same mind. Same mind. Thank you. And that you... Uh, uh, be together in the same judgment. Now that's interesting. Same judgment or same opinion. This is interesting. This is problematic. Red flag. Paul says, I hope that you have, that you speak the same thing that you think the same thing, that you hold the same opinions. Wow, wouldn't that be a wonderful church? (laughs) This is a hard thing that he's talking about. Now, Paul is not, in another place, he, he talks specifically in Romans, he talks about the need for unity and, and harmony so much so that you ought to, someone else, he, he even uses the term, he said, someone else that is weaker than you in their walk with God, someone else who requires extra uh, things to keep them in line that, that you don't require to achieve the same spiritual posture before God. He said, be careful not to offend them. So Paul qualifies, and by the way, Paul was at Corinth when he writes the epistle to the Romans. It's, it's pretty much understood. He's at Corinth when he writes the epistle to Rome. And so Paul's dealing with this same spirit here when he writes to Rome. And he says to Rome, there's going to be differences of opinions on certain matters in the church. But do not seek to divide, but seek to include, seek to love until we come to the same place. But here Paul writes a few years later, and he's writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, look... I pray that you would speak the same thing. And and the real key here is that there would be no divisions in the church. 
And, and, that, and that word there, divisions, is, is not just a separating. It's not, it's not separating to organize into groups to be able to accomplish the ministry of the gospel. No, what that word means there is literally a tearing apart, that you are ripping apart, that you are destroying unity that exists, and you are literally tearing it apart, that you are ripping apart things that God has put together. And, and Paul's addressing this and say, I want you to speak the same thing, have the same mind, and hold the same opinion. This was so bad in this situation. Read on. Verse 11. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren. There it is. My brethren. Everybody smile. <laughs> He's being really polite as much as he can here. Okay, go on. By them which are of the house of Chloe. Yes. That there are contentions among you. All right, so we're not sure exactly who Chloe was, who the house is, whether it's a man or a woman. It's possible that some people believe that it was a significant uh, Gentile that, that may have not even been a believer, probably someone that did not live in, maybe even live in Corinth, but yet they are testifying to the fact that this is the most divided group I've ever seen before. And so whoever it was, the people at Corinth would know who this was, and it was a horrible indictment. These people are saying that there are contentions among you, that there are divisions among you. Read on. Now this I say, yes. that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? All right. I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. Okay, so let's pause there right now. So he's coming through and he's saying, first of all, there's a horrible testimony that there's major contentions among you. And he said, every one of you saith, now Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. This is so bad that it had come to a place to where everyone had just fallen to factions. Now, Paul does not say that there's any issues between him and the other leaders. Paul comes, he spends a year and a half. We set this up in Acts 18. We know the story. A year and a half, revival takes place. He leaves, and then Apollos is now sort of like the pastor, if you will, in Corinth, has an incredible ministry there. And then uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, has some converts there. We, we believe that Peter uh, and his wife traveled at some time, maybe comes through this region and is here. And then there's some that are just saying, well, I was with Jesus. And so now they are dividing over who baptized them and whose convert they were. They are totally missing the point. This is what Paul is saying. You are missing the point, and you think that it is important or matters or makes a difference in your life who put you under. You think 
that the person that was standing there, when they put you under, that their ministry has some kind of significant bearing on your identity and who you are, and you're in this special group, and one saying, I'm of Paul, and others saying, well, I'm of Apollos. He's the cool pastor. Others are saying, I'm of Cephas. I'm of the apostle Peter. And others are saying, well, I am of Jesus Christ. Bless God. I'm just better than all of you. And Paul's saying, you are missing the point. Right. Yeah. And he's so frustrated. He asked them this question in verse 13. Is Christ divided? You were baptized of Paul in the name of Jesus. You were baptized of Apollos in the name of Jesus. You were baptized of Peter in the name of Jesus. Is Christ divided? Is God content to have different churches in this earth? Did Jesus Christ come to this earth and die on a cross so that there could be different churches? Or did he come to die for one body? He doesn't say this, but is there going to be multiple brides? No, there's going to be one bride. Either we are the bride of Christ or we are not the bride of Christ. There is not, well, I'm the first bride, I'm the second bride, I'm the third bride, I'm the fourth bride, I'm whatever. What kind of freak show is that? No, God is not divided. Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. That's right. Amen. This is what Paul is saying. He's literally saying, do you hear what you are saying? Do you understand how foolish this is? Man, some of the best advice I ever heard was just to stop and listen to what you are saying. (laughs) Whew, I didn't like that. But isn't it amazing? Now, I talk to myself, and my wife isn't here to testify of this, but I also talk to myself alone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it's amazing sometimes when you, when you actually, and, and it's one thing to talk to yourself, but then it's another thing, it takes on a different, a different tone when you actually pray the problems that you have. Because when you're talking to yourself, well, you're, you're, your own, you're your own judge, jury, and everybody's on your side. So all your frustrations, all your angers, yeah, that's right, that's right. You're encouraging yourself. All right. But when you actually take it to God and you begin to pray, that's why every problem that you have, you ought to bring to the Lord and start praying about. Because you can't pray, God, this person is really, oh, they just. You be, God is big enough to handle our honest prayers. So you take them to the Lord and you start, when you start speaking things out, and you start saying things, and all of a sudden, You listen to what you're saying when you're speaking to the Lord. And so what Paul is saying, do you hear what you are saying? Do you understand what you are saying? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's he saying? It does not matter if you never knew my name. It does not matter if I never came through Corinth. What matters is that you've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What matters is that He is Lord in your life. And He literally, emphatically 
just gets so frustrated. He said, in fact, because of your stinking attitude, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize none of you. (laughs) Except for Christmas and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. Paul was there for a year and a half. And what he says here, um, well, uh, he's establishing some things here. Crispus was the chief ruler of the synagogue where Paul goes. And of course, they throw him out of the synagogue, but he does convert the chief ruler of the synagogue. Crispus is a convert. Gaius is, uh, or Gaius is a, uh, in, in the book of Romans, when he writes here, in Romans chapter 16 and 21, he makes a reference to Gaius being the host where Paul was staying. So he's, he's, uh, uh, he's definitely a wealthy man, probably a wealthy Gentile. He is uh, the host of the church at Corinth. So when the revival is taking place, there's this man that has a large enough facility, courtyard or whatever. It was a place where they could gather together for, for worship. And so here's another great convert that Paul had a close affinity to. He's only there a year and a half. And he says, I baptized these two, Crispus, one of the first converts, Gaius, one of the first hosts of the church. And he says, uh, I'm glad I didn't baptize anymore, lest they, they would have said, I baptized in my own name. And then look at verse 16. Read verses 16 and 17. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Yes. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Yes. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Okay. So Paul is dealing with this issue. It's, it's really interesting here how he says in verse uh, 14, I thank God I baptized none of you, but Christmas... And Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptize in my name. He's making the point that it does not matter who baptized you. What matters is that you were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that Christ is the one whose name is applied to your life, that your faith is in him and him alone. But then in verse 16, it's like he puts this interjection in, interjection in here, if you will. It's like he has a remembrance. Now, in our day and age with text and type and spell check, when you were typing things out, if you want to add something, how many use the delete button or the backspace button? You go back, you correct that, you edit that, that's easy. But when they're writing a letter, you don't do that, right? You write the letter, it is what it is. You don't throw it out and say, okay, I'm going to start all over. You just keep on writing. You add in your interjections. And here he throws in an interjection. Oh, by the way, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides them, I, I, I can't think of any others which I baptized. So we almost see this like spur of the moment, ad hoc kind of interjection that's thrown in in this letter as he's going through. This allows us, this gives us a little bit more personality about what's happening here. Paul is responding as the moment demands, as soon as possible to the issue at hand that's at Corinth. And he is writing literally from his heart. And he is writing as the Spirit of the Lord directs him and guides him. This is not a letter that is penned 
and then edited for, and polished for proper presentation. This is a letter that is straight from the heart of the apostle as he's giving these things. So we can see an authenticity, if you will, allow me to use that word here. We can see he's in the moment that of what he's saying. Paul is is captivated by this passion. We can even see his passion in his focus. And he goes on. The problem that was in the church was there was division and they were destroying the work of God, ripping it apart by their pride. This is the most foolish thing ever. And Paul's reestablishing that the primacy of the church is not who baptizes you. Yeah, yeah. It's not even about the preacher at all. But the focus is Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. His focus was the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I came to do was I came to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is the incarnation, the mighty God become flesh, and that incarnation going to a cross and becoming our full and final atonement, becoming the propitiation of our sins, that through him we can know about God, and through him we can have access, and through him we can have salvation. This is what Paul said, I was motivated to do. Now what he's not saying is he's not saying that baptism is unessential, What he's not saying is that baptism is not important. What he is not saying is that baptism does not matter. But what we understand in the role of the apostles and what we see in the New Testament is that they would would command baptism. That's how emphatic it was. We see that in Acts 8 and Acts 10 and Acts 19. Even Paul himself at Ephesus told the disciples of John, man, I'm so excited for what you've had happen in your life. But what you need is you need to be baptized in the name of the Lord and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And they did such. But as was the custom, baptism was something that often was done by another disciple. And so we do not see the apostles themselves very much baptizing, just like Jesus. He modeled this for them. As he would go around, they would, the disciples would baptize under repentance there. And, and Jesus would allow his disciples to do the baptism because it did not matter as much who was doing the baptism. What mattered was who was being baptized, what they were being baptized for, in whose faith they were placing their soul. It was in the name of the Lord. So you think about it today, we have baptistries, we have convenience of modern technology, and I can come out here and I can preach and I can go back there and I can baptize somebody and I can come back out here and I can continue the service. And it's not really a big ordeal. It's nothing more than me taking off my suit coat and rolling up my, my, my sleeves. But to baptize 2,000 years ago, they did not have that luxury. They would take off their sandals and they would walk into the muddy banks 
And, and if they were baptizing, they had to go deep enough to be able to submerge somebody, immerse them in the water, which meant that the baptizer was getting all wet. It, it was a disruption. It was a big thing. And so often you would have a preacher, and then you'd have someone else that was traveling with them that would facilitate the baptism. Because after they came out, man, they're going to be a mess. They're going to have to take care of things. And here the apostle would continue on. And so Paul's not saying that baptism is not important, but he's saying that I knew my place. I knew what Christ sent me to do, what God sent me to do. And that was the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I stayed focused and I did what I was sent to do because I, I, I could have a, a disciple and a follower, someone that was with me. They could baptize, but maybe they didn't know the answers to all of the questions. And so I would focus on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And he's telling them it does not matter who your preacher is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It does not matter what household that you're walking into when you gather for worship, because eventually the church grew big enough that it couldn't all fit in Gaius's house. They had to meet in other spaces. They couldn't all assemble together. Anybody else want to see a revival that's that great? And all of a sudden, it's really them foolishing, foolishly saying, "Well, well, I go to this church." Nobody's going to help me preach on Thursday night, Wednesday night, Wednesday night. I'm on the wrong day. They probably won't help me preach on Thursday night either. I think we have to be careful. I love my church. I love this church. I love the place where God has brought me. I, th I thank God. It's the place where I worship. It's the place where He speaks to me. It's the place where God feeds me. It's the place where we can bring our family. It's the body of Christ that God assembles us where we can edify one another. And, and I, I think there's nothing wrong with being thankful for that and shouting it from the housetops and, 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 and proclaiming, wow, this is awesome and, and wanting to bring everybody here. But I do not love my church to the point. I say my church. That's because this is the place that I am, where I serve, where I attend. I do not love my church to the point that I want to see the dissolvement of someone else's church. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Amen. Right? I don't love my church to the point where all my social media posts are my church is better than your church, that I want to make somebody else feel sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's, good. that's good. Yes, sir. All right. But man, sometimes those things can creep in. Yeah. And all of a sudden we start feeling bad. Well, man, my church isn't as big or my church doesn't have this or we don't have blue lights or we don't have that or we don't have this. And we're missing the point where two or three are gathered together in my name. Yeah. Well, my pastor's older. Well, my pastor's, well, my pastor doesn't have any hair. Well, my pastor has white hair. Well, we still sing from hymnals. Well, we're still putting, we're still uh, using the overhead projector. We're, we, we've got a better projector. Well, our projector's still square. Well, our, our, our screen has three projectors and it's super wide. Can I tell you, it does not matter. Amen. What matters is, is the gospel being preached. Our souls repenting. Our people being baptized. Our people being filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Our lives being changed, our lives being delivered, our hearts being mended. Is God the Lord of them? And Paul's dealing with this crazy disruption that's come into the church. He's saying, look, it's the preaching of the cross. This is the greatest thing. So now to address this contention. Now, now we laugh and we scoff, but, but how, how, how true and trivial do we see these things sometimes where even people of so-called like faith 
look down upon one another. Bless your heart. Bless their little hearts. They're trying. No, we, we can't have that kind of an attitude. That's right. They are trying. Who do you think you are? You think you've got it all figured out? You think I've got it all figured out? We don't have a clue what we're doing. Come on. So we serve the Lord. That's, that's the main thing that he's saying here. He said, I came to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I didn't come. And what he's saying is, I didn't come to baptize. I, I let someone else do that. I let someone else take care of that. I've come to spread the gospel. My purpose is the proclamation of the gospel. But yet, even in saying that, Paul said, but, but I'm not coming as a polished presenter. I'm not coming as the TED Talk extraordinaire. He said, unless I make the cross of none effect. This is what Paul is saying. I'm the apostle sent, commissioned by God to preach the gospel, but I am not commissioned by God because I have some great gifting and some great talent. Amen. Because if God chose me because I'm better than you, then all of a sudden I'm building a church that God needed me. I'm here to tell you God does not need me one moment, one iota. God could use anyone because it's the cross that makes the change. Read on. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Yes. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Yes. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Okay, this is really good. Okay, so let's, let's look at verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Who's he talking about? Them that perish. He's not just talking about them that die. He's talking about those that do not believe, that have no hope in the Lord. They perish. There's no hope of everlasting life in them. To them that perish... The preaching of the cross is foolishness. It's absolute insanity. What's he talking about here? Well, the Bible says there's a lot of things we could allude to, but let's just take this one thing. And that is the Bible says that Jesus Christ was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Now, we're, we're, we're removed, Brother Ebert, we are removed from our food pretty far today. Right? We go to the grocery store, and we buy eggs, and we buy meat, and, and, and we think, oh, there's, I don't know, it's like it come out of a lab or it comes out of a factory. And we don't understand the process of death that is involved in much of the food that we eat. And so we are removed from that. But it, it, in, in an agricultural more environment, they would have been very aware of that. And the unique thing about sheep is that sheep never resist death. You lead a sheep to be slaughtered, and it's not going to resist. It will, it will stay there. Now, now they'll bad and do all that other stuff, you know, but they do that anyway. They do that any time. But a sheep will go dumb or silent to the slaughter. It's not fighting. It's one of the most ridiculous things. Sheep have no defense. In fact, uh, one, one of the arguments for creation is that if evolution was absolutely true, sheep defy evolution because they would have been extinct first. <laughs> and, and sheep have always been domesticated. Without a shepherd, sheep don't survive. 
They don't, they don't even know how to feed themselves. They have to be led where to fed. They have to be defended. And, 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 and sheep, you leave them to slaughter. They're just going to go, and they, they just lay their life down. They just stand there willingly, and look at you, and, and they're going to give you their life, and it's gone. It makes no sense. It's out, they're, 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 one of, they're considered one of the dumbest animals because of that. And Jesus Christ was led to the cross. The Bible says he goes to his death like a lamb led to the slaughter. That he did not revile one word. He did not speak out. He lit. He went literally, willingly. This is the most foolish, idiotic thing to our human reasoning and our human rationale for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. This is absolutely foolish. But unto us which are saved... It is the power. See, the world looks at the cross and thinks, this is so foolish. Jesus is going, he doesn't even say anything. Look at him. What a weakling. What? He doesn't even defend himself. He doesn't even do anything. He just willingly is led like a lamb to the slaughter. But to us who are saved, we understand that he was not weak. In that moment, when he went and he didn't say anything, he was not being deceived. He was not defeated, but he was victorious. He was strong. He knew exactly what he was doing. He even said so. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He let it play it out. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't fearful. He carried it out. He went all the way to Calvary's cross. He went all the way up there. In fact, he never spoke a word except when the high priest invoked the Levitical law that required there was a law that was reserved for the high priest to invoke anytime there was a situation and they rarely used it but the high priest would use the words and in the New Testament he does it he speaks to him and he says I adjure thee by the living God tell us whether you be the son of God whether you be the incarnation whether you be the Messiah tell us and that was the only time that Jesus Christ responded and testified of himself every other time he stood there and he sat silent and that Levitical law that was rarely invoked was used in reservation the high priest could come in any situation where somebody didn't want to tell the truth because sometimes if you told the truth, you would have people that would be mad at you and so you did not want to be a witness and so you wouldn't say anything. But the high priest could say, by the name of God, I command you to tell the truth. Did this happen or did this not happen? And if that person told the truth, they were off the hook. But if they did not tell the truth, they would die. Literally, God himself would kill them, smite them. They would die. And so whenever the high priest invoked that law, that person would die if they were not telling the truth. And the high priest looks at Jesus Christ, the lamb led, <laughs> or led like a lamb to the slaughter that hasn't spoken a word. He says, are you the son of God? I adjure thee by the living God. And the high priest thinks, aha, I have him cornered because now he has to tell the truth. He has to confess that he's not God. If he doesn't, he's going to die. And Jesus says, thou hast said it. That's his way of saying, yes, I am. And the pause in the room. (gasps) 
But Jesus didn't die. And all of a sudden now, the high priest, the Bible says, takes his garment and he rips his garment. He cries out and he rips his garment, which also was a prohibition by the Levitical law that the high priest could never rent his garment. If he rent his garment, he was displacing himself. And as the Lord stood there bound when the high priest invoked that law and Jesus said, you're saying right. I am the son of God. The high priest himself rips his garment. That was the moment of transfer when Jesus became your high priest and my high priest. He did not go to that cross. He did not go to that cross as as a weakling, as a wimp, but he went knowing exactly what he was doing in three days. I'm going to rise again. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? It's the power of God. Amen. 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 And now Paul goes back to Isaiah. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Okay, go with me to Isaiah chapter 29. This is where he's quoting here. Sort of help you understand here. And I didn't get near as far as I needed to get tonight, but that's all right. That's your fault. (laughs) Isaiah 29, 13 through 15. Isaiah 29, 13 through 15. Wherefore, the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near to me, near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Get what he's saying here? Their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. You know what he's saying? He's saying this has become nothing more than just a religion to them. Yeah. If I was going to put it in modern day words. This, this doesn't have anything to do with relationship, with respect, with knowledge, with understanding. They are just mindly, mindlessly following the religious leaders of their day. They are letting men dictate to them rather than asking what God. He says, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord and their works in the dark, and they say, who seeth us and who knoweth us. What God was telling them, he said, I'm going to show them. He said, I'm going to bring to naught all of their wisdom, all of the things that they have, everything they think is so great. He said, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to dispel. It's going to, it's going to fall away. And this is exactly what Paul was calling on here when he said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wide and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And now we ask a question, where is the wise? Where is the wise? Who's he writing to? Well, this is important. He's writing to the Corinthians. They're Gentiles. Cosmopolitan, multiracial, multireligious kind of Greek philosophers, Roman social elites here. Paul says, where are the wise? Where are the wise? All your wise men that you put, this this was their thing. The Greeks considered themselves cultured. They considered themselves great, sophisticated people, people of logic and people of reasoning. And Paul's saying, the Lord is saying to you, yeah, how's that working out for you? (laughs) Yeah, Greeks, 
Uh, how, all, all your Greek philosophies that are so great, how'd that work out for you? Oh, yeah, isn't Rome ruling you now? Who's he writing to? The Corinthians. Where's Corinth? It's in Greece. How's this working out for you? Yeah, this is what you're going to put your faith in? Where is the scribe? Where is the scribe? Where, where, where's, where's the scribe? That, that, that would be another word for, for the, uh, the rabbi, those that would uh, uh, write down their laws. How's this working out for you, Jews? Where's the disputer of this world? They, they were men that loved to debate. They loved to sit around and they didn't really care so much about truth as much as they loved to argue about truth and debate about truth. If they ever actually discovered truth, they would find a way to turn it up on its head and argue about that. It was philosophy. Let's turn it inside out. Anybody ever study philosophy? Sometimes they get really close to sounding really great and some great things. But all the philosophy that's outside of the wisdom of God and outside of the authority and submission to God comes to naught. This is what he's saying. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Read on. For after that in the wisdom of God, yes, the world by wisdom knew not God. By wisdom, they didn't know God. All of the world, where do you think? Where do you think the Tower of Babel led them? Did they know God? Where are the Syrians? Did you know that the Assyrians... One of the greatest ancient civilizations would send a scribe into every battle. If they would, every place that they would go and conquer, they would send a scribe and they would record everything about that city, everything about their religion, everything about their technologies. And they amassed one of the greatest knowledge banks of the world in the Assyrian Empire. Archaeologists still have not translated and decoded everything. Much, much of what we know about the ancient world comes from one place of discovery where the Assyrians recorded everything. They were trying to create the first World Wide Web, if you will, to where they had access to all information of all people of all time. Yeah, where are they now? How did that get you? Read on. It pleased God by it the pleased God, yes, by the preaching, by the folly, the illogical, nonsensical folly of preaching to save them that believe. To save them that believe. God says, "I'm not going to let you come to me upon your own rationale, but I'm going to come to you by the folly of preaching." by what your human mind will initially want to reject, by what your spirit is going to say, I don't want to be a part of, that's what I'm going to use to save them that believe. And we'll stop here at verse 21. To save them that believe. This is another phrase that is verification that not everyone is going to be saved. Because in order to be saved... You have to believe. Paul makes a distinction. He said, there are those that perish, but then there will be those that believe. And those will be saved. Amen. Can we stand together tonight? Are you thankful for the Word of God? Amen. Are you thankful for the preaching of the cross? Hallelujah. We preach Christ crucified under the Jews' stumbling block and under the Greeks' foolishness but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God.
So Paul takes us to this place where he's giving us the wisdom of God, and in doing so, he lets us know how trivial, how minuscule, how ridiculous and foolish our real divisions and fights are in the church. Amen. A church that is not focused on the cross and the gospel will descend into division every time. But the unifying thing that brings us back together is when we focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. When we remember, as my pastor would always say, we are all level at the foot of the cross. What is he saying? I need God just as much as you do, and you need God just as much as I do. And we're all here together calling out for the Lord to help us and to save us. Amen. Thank the Lord.